Hello, and welcome to the Road Not Taken podcast. I'm your host, Paul Capuano, and we're joined today by the first official guest on the podcast, Benjamin Rostano. Uh, ben studies uh, business uh, as well as data analysis and statistics, and he also follows uh, the Boston Red Sox as well as the NBA and the NFL. So today on the show, we're going to be discussing the Green New Deal, Virginia's politicians' recent scandals with blackface and sexual assault allegations, uh, the Super Bowl, including Tom Brady's legacy, and all of the deals that went down at the NBA trade deadline. So first, we're going to start with the Green New Deal. Um, If you aren't familiar with this piece of legislation, it's been proposed by some of the more left-leaning Democrats in Congress, uh, specifically by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I'm going to let Ben take over with what specifically is in the Green New Deal as well as his perspective uh, on how it's going to turn out if, in fact, it does become a law. So, Ben, I'll turn it over to you. Well, the Green New Deal addresses uh, climate change and global warming, and there are several initiatives to um, put in renewable energy, all renewable energy throughout the United States, replacing uh, coal, natural gas, oil, etc. Um, that's one of the initiatives. Another one of the initiatives is to create a number of new jobs in the clean energy sector. All right. Um, um, so I'll, I'll just jump in right now. Uh, so that actually, uh, it, it sounds good on its surface. Um, I was wondering what your take is, because in some sense, is this going to require uh, nationalization of like private industries? Yes, I believe so. Uh, I believe that the private sector will likely not be involved at all in the clean energy sector, um, in cleaning up the environment. So this is a very uh, socialized approach to uh, the energy world in general. Um, All right. So, yeah, so about that... um, I guess one of the criticisms of the bill has been essentially that this is a socialist uh, and socialist-minded bill that's designed to you know move America in a more centralized, nationalized, socialized direction uh, that has climate change attached to it, in a sense, almost like climate change is the carrot and then socialization is the stick at the end of it. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that those concerns are well-founded or that, in fact, this a Green New Deal is uh, just what it seems to be on the surface. I think that, yes, those concerns are well-founded. But if you're approaching it from a more socialist point of view, you would be rejoicing to see uh, a type of legis- this type of legislation um, put through Congress and the Senate. Um, there, there's a lot of good things mixed in with this bill, as well as some things that are laughable, if you will. Um, For instance, one of the good things, it it promotes clean air and water, healthier food. Um, It says here in part of the bill, it says, uh, the purpose of this is to secure for all people of the United States for generations to come, clean air and water, climate and community resiliency, healthy food, access to nature, and a sustainable environment. Uh, it's a little unclear how they're going to do those things. 
they all sound good on the surface. Um, but I'm not entirely sure how they're going to do those things. Right. So, um, yeah, obviously time will tell. We have to wait and see. Um, you know, we can't really predict too much uh, without actually, you know, seeing how the bill operates in practice. Um, one last uh, thing about the Green New Deal before we wrap up and move on to our next segment. Um, there is a provision in the bill regarding uh, remedying historic injustices, uh, particularly for uh, people in the lower end of the income spectrum, uh, which would be described as poor. Uh, although it is, you know, worth noting that the poor in the U.S. have been, you know, relatively better off than poor in a lot of other places, but still poor uh, by the U.S.'s standards uh, and people of color as well. Uh, so, what do you think about the inclusion of that initiative into the Green New Deal? Um, I'm not entirely sure what that has to do with clean energy. Uh, it does mention later on in the bill that. Uh, obtaining the, it says, quote, obtaining the free and prior and informed consent of indigenous peoples for all decisions that affect indigenous peoples and their traditional territories. So that has to do with the Native Americans that live out west that have been affected by the gas line. Yes, the Keystone Pipeline. Um, I'm not entirely sure what they mean by uh, racial injustices, if that's talking about other minorities as well, but uh, minorities like the Native Americans. Uh, this bill is hoping to uh, settle some injustices that have been in the past, such as the pipeline. Right. I, I would I would assume, uh, at least to put a charitable construction on it, that the the reason that's been included isn't out of like a bad faith, you know, kind of like slipping it into the bill, uh, but rather that, like you said, they're focusing on making sure that, um, you know, at, at least in the past. Uh, marginalized communities like the Native Americans have had their rights disregarded, um, you know, for the sake of the the, the private industry. Uh, and I think that the Green New Deal probably would allow us to avoid that. Um, at least in theory, if we're moving to clean energy, we're not going to be need uh, needing, you know, pipelines or heavy development of the earth or private property, mm-hmm. um, you know, or communal property. Uh, so I think that would avoid a lot of the concerns there. Um, I, I think the bill may be suffering from some unfortunate wording, um, that allows people to, you know, look at that and come to a different conclusion. Um, it, this bill may take some rewriting. Uh, I know that Nancy Pelosi has expressed some skepticism over uh, this bill passing. So before we move to the next segment, uh, just real quick, what do you think this bill uh, is going to do to the Democratic Party? Because we've seen a fracture recently between the more, you know, blue blood uh, mainstream Democrats of the Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden type. Uh, and they've been clashing with some of the the fresher faces like uh, you know AOC or uh, Ilhan Omar or some of the newer uh, Congress people. So, what do you think this bill represents in terms of the larger divide between the Democratic Party? Do you think that can be rectified, uh, or do you think it's just going to further fracture uh, the left in preparation for this twenty twenty run? Well, unless the Democrats are able to come together on topics like this and. Uh, not and put aside their differences, then they will most definitely, in my opinion, uh, fracture continue to fracture even more than they already have. As you said, Nancy Pelosi has made some disparaging comments about this bill, and uh, AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez has not addressed these comments, um, rather, 
she brushed them aside and didn't really say much of them at a press conference concerning the bill. Um, so it seems that they don't want to, the Democrats don't want to, uh, attack each other in, in, in ways that the Republican party in the past has had no problem doing, uh, the Republican Party has had a lot of infighting in the past, and apparently this is the new age where the Democrats will be doing the same thing that the Republicans had done for the past eight years during the Obama presidency. Right, and uh, we did talk about that a little bit on our last episode, so uh, if you haven't listened to that, uh, you can go back, uh, not not you specifically, Ben, but rather our listeners, um, and take a look. Uh, it was in an analysis of the upcoming 2020 election. Uh, and as I did mention in that last podcast, uh, there will be other uh, discussions of that 2020 run as we get closer. Um, so I would like to move to the next uh, major topic in the news and political realm over the last couple weeks, and that would be not Florida, but Virginia. Uh, Florida has a reputation for having crazy headlines that nobody would you know, believe would be happening. Uh, recently, Virginia has decided to take back that title. It uh, seems that just about every 20 minutes, there's a new politician that has a scandal, um, particularly uh, the governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general have all had uh, very troubling um, revelations that have come to light in the last uh, week or so um, with the governor, uh, Ralph Northam, um, and the uh, attorney general. It is uh, blackface controversy, um, blackface being the you know, uh, a white person, you know, putting on dark makeup in order to imitate uh, looking uh, like, you know, a black person or an African-American person. Um, and with the lieutenant governor, uh, that would be a sexual assault allegation. So I was wondering, Ben, what your take was, um, both on the, the blackface and the sexual assaults, uh, and what you think the Republican Party would need to do to capitalize on this and how the Democrats can minimize uh, the effect that this might have on both their chances, you know, in Virginia, but more broadly, uh, in the public eye. Well, I think to completely minimize this for the Democrats, Ralph Northam would have to resign from his position, and likely the lieutenant governor would as well. Um, although uh, there they are only allegations against the lieutenant governor, uh, we have seen in the past with politicians that allegations easily take people down uh, without even having gone to going to trial or in front of a, a congressional uh, committee or anything like that. Brett, Brett Kavanaugh specifically, I think you're probably referring to yes. uh, the damage that those allegations can do. Yes. Yeah, so there, to minimize that, there no doubt that they would, both of them would have to resign. Um, it seems that the Republicans have already attempted to capitalize on this. They are, um, the Virginia Republicans have wanted in the past to cut taxes, um, state income taxes specifically. And the state legislature during this has been working um, day and night to pass bills uh, that would lower income tax for uh, local Virginians. Mm -hmm. All right. So, um, any, I guess, parting thoughts on this? Uh, we have yet to see. Uh, we, we actually, well, like, I mean, what we did see was some initial uh, remorse from Governor Northam. Uh, he, you know, he apologized, um, and then he seemingly backtracked and said, you know, he wasn't sure he was in the picture. Um, 
it, that may be a response to the fact that he believed that if he apologized, um, you know, the, the, the media scrutiny would be put off of him, you know, an apology would be enough. However, having seen now that he's, you know, still facing some calls for resignation from both, uh, you know, conservatives who have seen the double standard in terms of how Brett Kavanaugh was treated, and also, uh, you know, several um, Democratic presidential uh, hopefuls have also come out and denounced him and called for him to resign, including Julian Castro and Kamala Harris. Um, it seems as though he's decided that if he was going to go down anyway, he may as well fight. Um, so it is interesting, however, because if uh, Ralph Northam was forced to resign, uh, the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, would have to about succeed him. And he is currently embroiled in this sexual assault scandal. Um, and then the attorney general, who I believe is the next in line beyond that, um, Herring, uh, A.G. Herring, uh, ha- was the second person with the blackface scandal. So he would then theoretically have to resign, which would open the door for the um, the head of the Republicans in Virginia, as he would be the fourth in line uh, to ascend to the governor's position and actually flip the governor's seat in Virginia from Democrat to Republican. Um, it seems highly unlikely that you know if that even one of those three major Democratic figures would resign, uh, much less all three of them. Uh, but it is something to monitor in the coming days. So for our last segment uh, in the news and politics section, uh, we're going to give a brief roundup of ISIS. So in Donald Trump's uh, State of the Union, um, as well as recent comments that he's made, um, he's expressed uh, his belief that ISIS has been uh, eradicated or reduced to the point that it is no longer a threat to the U.S. Um, there's been you know, some people uh, on both the left and the right that agree. Um, and some people on both the left and the right that disagree. So I was wondering what your take was on that. Um, if you could give us an update on what's going on with ISIS, um, as well as your thoughts on whether or not the U.S. should continue to have a military presence in the Middle East in order to completely stamp them out, um, or if your take is that they have been stamped out and it is time to uh, return the American military presence from the Middle East back to the United States. Well, according to the Department of Defense Pentagon uh, summary of the executive summary of the situation in Syria, uh, it states, on December 19th, President Donald Trump announced that the U.S. military would withdraw approximately 2,200 U.S. troops stationed in Syria. The Secretary of Defense subsequently ordered the withdrawal of all troops from Syria, and according to the DOD, the withdrawal process was ongoing as of the time this publication as of the time of the publication of this report. So this report was uh, released uh, a, f- a few days ago. And um, so troops are being withdrawn from Syria. And I will say that the Syrian rebels have done an v- excellent job of um, dr- uh, pushing out ISIS from their territory and mm-hmm. and pushing them towards uh, farther into the Middle East. So uh, one of the last uh, strongholds is in Syria and also in Iraq. The Pentagon report also stated that ISIS is regrouping in Iraq. So mm-hmm. the Pentagon has, has thought that the idea of withdrawing all the troops would be a bad idea because ISIS has been able to, uh, they will be able to uh, push farther into Syria. They'll be be able to push farther into other countries like Turkey or um, uh, 
perhaps Iran or uh, any of those Middle Eastern countries. So if you don't, if you don't I cut that completely, then you know it'll come back to haunt you. So yeah, go ahead. Yes. So that yeah, like you said, they haven't they haven't completely cut the head off the beast. It's they're still there. Uh, they're weaker than they were, much weaker than they were before. Um, but I would I would be in support of uh, leaving some troops there to uh, see that. ISIS is completely eradicated from the Middle East. Um, perhaps not the entire 2,200 troops that we have in Syria, but um, perhaps we should leave some of them behind uh, to finish off the job. Mm. And uh, I'll actually uh, uh, jump into my own opinion here. Um, so I actually had the opportunity to visit Israel um, in uh, early January and uh, you know visit the uh, Israeli-Syrian border. Um, so after talking to both uh, military officials in Israel, um, as well as you know civilians, religious leaders, um, it seems as though although the opinion of Donald Trump in Israel is very high, um, there's a lot of mixed feelings from the Israelis about this move to withdraw troops from Syria. Um, the problem is that Syria and Israel border each other. So if the U.S. pulls out, that would theoretically enable, um, you know, terrorists, uh, that includes, you know, Hamas, ISIS, Hezbollah, um, you know, any other terrorist organizations to essentially walk right up to the Israeli border from Syria and then start bombing. So, uh, you know, although Israel has a highly sophisticated defense system, um, you know, the U S is essentially acting as a buffer in Syria to protect Israel, uh, from the attacks from the middle East. So if we do pull out, it does remain to be seen whether or not, um, you know, ISIS can take advantage of that. Uh, in my personal opinion, you know, I stray more towards isolationism, uh, towards non-interventionism. Um, so generally speaking, I would prefer to keep American troops inside the United States. Um, I mean, you know, at, at what point are, you know, bad people around the world, you know, going to need to be taken out by the U.S.? Uh, I, w- I would prefer that unless they're a direct threat to us that we, you know, hold off. And it's not clear really at all that ISIS is capable of being a threat to the U.S., but there does remain that potential, um, and uh, you know, to, to your point, Ben, um, if we don't, you know, finish them off right now, it is you know a distinct possibility that in the future uh, they could regroup and cause more loss of life across the globe, uh, and perhaps even uh, become a threat to the U.S. So one thing not to forget about Middle Eastern organizations is that there is a lot of uh, radical, um, anti-American and anti-Western civilization sentiment among them. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it, there's a, a chance that, you know, were they to gain enough power, they would not be content staying in the Middle East, but would rather attempt to, uh, you know, retaliate uh, against the U.S. for our involvement there in the past. Uh, so any thoughts on that before we switch to our sports segment? Uh, no, I can't think of anything else. All right, great. So so uh, we're going to switch to sports. Um, so our first major topic um, is the NBA trade deadline, and then we'll finish up with a little bit about Tom Brady uh, after his Super Bowl win. So uh, the first thing to talk about is the NBA trade deadline. Um, this is one of the most active trade deadlines in recent memory, uh, perhaps even of all time. Uh, there were some blockbuster trades, such as the uh, Porzingis to the Dallas Mavericks last week that we talked about uh, in our prior episode. Um, the Milwaukee Bucks added Nikola Miritich, a um, power forward who's averaging around 17 points a game for the Pelicans. 
uh, and he can shoot threes. So he will now be spacing the floor with uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, the Raptors acquired Mark Gasol without giving up any of their major pieces. Um, and Markel Fultz went from the Philadelphia 76ers to the Magic as the 76ers also acquired Tobias Harris to create a big four of Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, Jimmy Butler, and Joel Embiid. So uh, we're only going to really talk in uh, about the, the major deadline deals because there were quite a few minor moves. Uh, but real quick, uh, what do you think about the 76ers? So just to recap, uh, they lost Markel Fultz, uh, as well as some minor players and expiring contracts and picks. But they acquired Jonathan Simmons, um, as well as Tobias Harris, who is the star of a playoff-bound Clippers team uh, up to up until this point at the season. So, what do you think about the Sixers, uh, their moves, and how this changes their outlook in the Eastern Conference playoffs? I think this definitely helps uh, the 76ers by getting rid of Markel Fultz. I don't think he was adding anything great to the team. Um, his shooting hasn't been that great. He's not a great free throw shooter. Um, and, and they already have a couple of those players that are like that, that type of player that, that aren't that great at shooting, um, from, from deep, uh, like Ben Simmons, for instance. Um, it, he already, he has a better skill set than Markel Fultz who plays a, a similar position in similar game. Uh, but Ben Simmons does a better job at that. And I think Tobias Harris is a great addition to the 76ers. I definitely think this this could be the team that plays in the Eastern Conference Finals and even goes to the NBA Finals. Right. So, I mean, even in that Markel Fultz trade, they got back Jonathan Simmons and a first-round pick. Uh, that was more just to get rid of Fultz deal, I think. But Jonathan Simmons can contribute. Um He's been getting a lot of playing time on the Magic. Uh, he's he's not going to be a needle mover, but he's somebody they can throw out. Uh, the 76ers are now going to be able to roll out a starting lineup of Ben Simmons, uh, who never takes three-pointers and yet is still a top 20 player in the NBA. Uh, JJ Redick, uh, his own, uh, actually in his own right, a podcast host, as well as a deadly three-point shooter, uh, one of the best in NBA history. Um, and then at small forward, they'll have Tobias Harris or Jimmy Butler, um, and then, you know, power forward would be that other slot, uh, with Jimmy Butler being both uh, an advanced scorer, a competent dribbler, and uh, an elite defender. Um, and Tobias Harris, who can score, he can defend, he can pass, he can do everything. And Joel Embiid, who is looking like an MVP candidate. Uh, so yeah, I agree. Um, there's a lot of good teams in the East. Uh, so we'll switch to our next contender, the Toronto Raptors. So they acquired Mark Gasol, a longtime Memphis Grizzly. Um, Gasol is having a very good year. Uh, he's looked a little bit slower on the defensive end, but he can still put up, you know, around 20 points a night every so often. And if he's not tired out, he can be a solid rim protecting big. So in this deal, the players they gave away, uh, not including picks are Dion Wright, who has shown promise, but he's a free agent and they probably would have had to let him go as well as Jonas Valencianis, um, who is their, uh, starting slash backup center. Um, and uh, I believe that's it. There may have been another player in the deal, but uh, that was inconsequential. Uh, what's of note is that they upgraded from uh, Jonas to Mark Gasol. So what do you think about that trade? Um, now that the Raptors have a starting lineup of Kyle Lowry, Danny Green, Kawhi Leonard, 
Marc Gasol, as well as either Serge Ibaka or Pascal Siakam, uh, with the other player of those two coming off the bench. What do you think about their chances, as well as that specific deal for Marc Gasol? Well, as a Celtics fan, this definitely pains me to see this trade because this could push the Celtics out of the Eastern Conference Finals, and we may be seeing a Raptors-Sixers Eastern Conference Finals. Um, Hmm. The Raptors have both a great offensive team and defensive team. They have Kawhi Leonard, one of the great defensive players, as well as Sergei Ibaka, um, who was a former block leader in the NBA. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's terrible that they added Marc Gasol because he's he's not the greatest. Uh, He hasn't been the greatest defensive player. He's been a very, very good uh, offensive player for the Grizzlies. Um, he's been one of their, their big scores besides, uh, uh, Michael Conley. And, uh, so I think it's a, it's a great addition that they got, uh, Marcus Hall. Um, so, so yeah, I will jump in. So, uh, you did say that, um, you anticipated a potential, uh, without the Celtics making it to the finals, potential, Raptors Sixers finals, but there's one more team that's looking like a heavyweight in the Eastern Conference uh, that we haven't talked about yet, and that would be the one that has the probable MVP as well as the top seed in the East. That would be the Milwaukee Bucks. So they had uh, world class athlete and player Giannis Antetokounmpo, as well as 3 and D wing Chris Middleton, um, and uh, some other players as well. But the big news for them at the trade deadline is that they acquired Nikola Miratic. So I mentioned him earlier. Uh, sharpshooter for the Pelicans. He is one of the rare power forwards that is a deadly outside three-pointer, uh, three-point shooter. Um, and so far, the Bucks' strategy with uh, the way they structure their team has basically to put Giannis and a bunch of three-point shooters on the floor. So their strategy has been he's going to run into the lane and try to dunk it. Um, if he can't do that or doesn't want to, he has a bunch of people that he can just throw the ball back out because defenses are going to have to collapse on Giannis. But if they do so, they're going to be leaving somebody open to take a three-point shot. So what do you think about this deal that gives them either even more length and three-point shooting, uh, although it doesn't really add too much in the way of defense? Well, I find it interesting that uh, they now have Miritich, who who plays a similar position to a Tenacumpo. I mean, a Tenacumpo mm. can play all five positions on the floor. He's he's a great right, player. Right. He can play any position. Uh, he's he can play point guard. He can play center. Um, now that they have Brook Lopez as well, uh, he doesn't need to play center. So uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo is the one that will be handling the ball and passing it out um, to better three shooters, like you said. Giannis is not a great three shooter. Lopez is a decent three uh, three point shooter for uh, a man of his size. They also have uh, uh, George Hill at a uh, point guard. Mm. They have uh, Eric Bledsoe, Eric Bledsoe, and Chris Middleton. All of them decent three point shooters, and Malcolm Brogdon as well, a decent three point shooter. So former rookie of the year, Giannis has all these options. Right, right. Um, so I guess um, one final point about the trade deadline. Although uh, breaking news just announced, uh, Francisco Lindor had, will miss about seven to nine weeks. Uh, he can miss all spring training, so that, that is uh, not good news for the Cleveland Indians. I just broke in the last couple minutes, um, but we'll, we'll uh, talk about the baseball in a future podcast. 
Um, so I guess uh, zooming a little bit further out. So we've been talking pretty generally about the playoff picture, but we're going to go even further beyond that. Um, how do you think that any of these moves made at the trade deadline affect the inevitable or seemingly inevitable NBA Finals matchup with the Golden State Warriors? Uh, the Warriors have been having some you know, internal conflict. Uh, Kevin Durant has been lukewarm about his desire to return to Golden State. Uh, it seems as though he may leave for you know the Knicks or the Clippers, um, but you know when that team is operating at its best, uh, there's you know it seems like there's nobody that can take them out. So who do you think uh, is in the best position after the trade deadline to challenge the Warriors? Um, be that one of those Eastern Conference teams that we mentioned, uh, or a team like the Celtics in the East, or you know anybody in the West really, uh, you know the Jazz, the Spurs, the Rockets. Uh, who do you think is uh, the best position to take down the Warriors? Well, in the Western Conference, uh, the best team to take the Warriors down would be the Rockets or uh, a dark horse here would be even the Nuggets would be uh, a team that could possibly take them down. Mm. Uh, but in the East... Right, and, and, and they did that recently. They uh, they destroyed the Warriors, um, and Jokic wasn't even playing that well, so... Uh, yeah, a definite possibility. I will just uh, interrupt you one more second here to throw in a team that I also forgot to mention, the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, who did not add a shooter, which they desperately need, but may be able to pick one up on the buyout market. But anyway, continue. So in the Eastern Conference, the Bucks are in first place. They have 40 wins and 13 losses. They have the best uh, winning percentage in the Eastern Conference. Uh, they're ahead of the Raptors who are in second, and the Pacers, who are in third. The Sixers, who have one of the best lineups, are down in fifth place with only 34 wins, and the Celtics have 35. So at this point, it's it's hard to determine who will be the one that can take them down. Um, none of these teams have really shown that they're capable of taking down an, a Western Conference team, let alone the Warriors. Uh a lot of these teams have had trouble beating uh, teams like the Trailblazers or uh, the Rockets or the Thunder. So I would say that uh, it, it's it's going to come down to whoever makes it to the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, which which will be the 76ers, Raptors, Celtics, possibly the Bucks. I would you can't. Uh, put them out of the Eastern Conference Finals because they they nearly made it last year. Uh, it was a seven-game series between uh, them and the Celtics. I remember that, yes. So mm-hmm. you, you, can't, you can't sleep on them. Although I, I will say, just to be fair, um, the Celtics have proven that they have what it takes to win the Eastern Conference. Um, they went you know, toe-to-toe with the Cavaliers during the LeBron years. None of these other teams uh, have yet been tested in the final rounds of the playoffs so far uh so you know while we you know we can talk about a team like the raptors uh or the sixers uh they have you know a reputation for choking in the early rounds especially the raptors uh and the bucks this is their first year really being a title threat um so aside from the celtics there's going to be that kind of inexperience factor at play um so any parting thoughts on the nba before we head to uh discuss the super bowl and tom brady well, um, as a Celtics fan, I'm very disappointed that we did not get Anthony Davis, one of the great shooters, one of the great blockers in the league. Um, so that was pretty discouraging. Uh, also, 
I know as you're a Knicks fan, uh, you've been disappointed with Chris Stapps being traded, mm-hmm. but uh, the lineup does look does look promising for the Knicks, uh, especially if they get a superstar traded to them in the future. Right. You know, I, I was uh, I was looking at possibilities, and it's highly unlikely this happens. Um, but if they dump basically all of their young players, uh, which would be in a trade for Anthony Davis, they would have enough cap space for Kyrie Irving. Anthony Davis and Kevin Durant on the same team. Uh, now they would have to basically get rid of you know Kevin Knox, Neil Akina, uh, Mitchell Robinson, Trier, and Dotson, as well as the uh, the first round pick in this draft. Uh, but if that's what it takes to get Anthony Davis, you could see a big three that rivals the LeBron, the uh, LeBron Wade Bosch back in 2010. Um, now the problem there is you know filling out the rest of the team. Um, now it is worth noting the Celtics were handicapped by the fact that. Unless they traded Kyrie, they could not actually acquire AD at the deadline. Um, and they, as we saw, did not trade Kyrie. Um, there's a, a weird rule that you can't have uh, certain players that are on uh, different types of uh, max contracts. Um, so they can't get them. Uh, they can get them in the offseason. And if they jump back into it, um, the Lakers will probably be wishing that they'd closed the deal because the Celtics have some great options, uh, some great players to offer. Um, so one final question, consider this a lightning round question. If you had to pick which team Anthony Davis is on at the start of next season, uh, what team would that be? I'm afraid to say it might be the Lakers. All right. So we'll leave it at that. Um, and we'll revisit this, uh, hopefully at the beginning of next year. Um, I, I would predict the Lakers as well, just cause you know, LeBron gets what LeBron wants. Um, but with that, we're going to move to our final segment, um, and that would be Tom Brady. So I promised on our podcast last time that we talked about the Super Bowl. Um, pretty much everybody watched it. Uh, the big points uh, that came out of the Super Bowl were the halftime show being a dud. Um, you know, Maroon 5 was good maybe like 20 years ago, but uh, recently not quite as good. Um, but, you know, uh, it's really hard to live up to the expectations of performing at the Super Bowl. Um, but a lot of people were unsatisfied with that performance as well as the actual game. Um, for what I saw of the game, it seemed as though it was more of a good defensive matchup than it was the offenses being bad. Uh, but people want to see points and we did not, uh, there was only one player that scored a touchdown in that game. And that was Sony Michelle with a running touchdown. Tom Brady did not throw a TD. Um, so my question for uh, for you, Ben, isn't really about the Super Bowl itself, uh, but rather about Tom Brady. So uh, as we know, he's getting up there in age. Um, I think he is now inarguably the greatest quarterback of all time, and that pains me to say as a Patriots hater and New York Giants fan. Um, but now that he has all of these rings, uh, he's won another Super Bowl. He said he doesn't want to retire yet. Um, what do you think Tom Brady should do? How long do you think he should keep playing? Um, and where do you see both the Patriots going from here now that they're going to have Patrick Mahomes chasing them down every year in the playoffs? And what do you think Brady's legacy is uh, now that he has, I believe, his sixth championship ring? Well, Tom Brady has stated in the past that he's wanted to play till age 45, which would be quite remarkable for an NFL player. There are very few that have made that uh uh, benchmark of 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 forty five, um, Joe Montana couldn't do it. Other great quarterbacks could not do it. Tom Brady may be the first, and uh, 
he will definitely go down as I know as it pained you probably he's probably the greatest quarterback of all time um but of all players of all quarterbacks to ever play I'd say he's one of the most hated that's ever played so uh mm-hmm. legacy wise he's going to be known in the history books as the greatest but he's also going to be known as the most hated as well all right um so so uh yeah re- real quick um he, uh, you know, he's getting up there. Um, you think that uh, this this next year is the year that Mahomes takes the crown of AFC's best quarterback away from Brady, uh, not just in terms of stats, which Mahomes has already done, um, but in terms of playoff success. Do you think the Chiefs are going to uh, to pull it together and become the next Patriots? They very well could this next year. I have no doubt that they will in the future. I'm not sure about specifically next year. Uh, but in the years following, uh, when Brady retires, the Chiefs will definitely be the team uh, to look to uh, with the great quarterback um, and the great leadership there uh, that they have. Um, it's, it's Yeah, like you said, it's no doubt uh, that Patrick Mahomes had, had one of the greatest, he had one of the greatest uh, rookie seasons uh, as a quarterback. And I would conclude even as a Chiefs fan that uh, his great offensive season had to do with uh, NFL rule changes that have allowed uh, uh, it easier to be a quarterback without getting sacked as much uh, if you follow. Uh, In years past uh, you had players like Ray Lewis who would never let that would never you would never see Patrick Mahomes play in a year in the years with uh, a player like Ray Lewis. It, It just he just couldn't score as many touchdowns. Well, uh, thank you for coming on. I think this just about wraps it up. Uh, we hope to have you on uh, much more in the future. Um, perhaps at some point you will uh, ascend to rock star level at the Road Not Taken podcast. Um, thank you for coming on. Uh, you're our very first guest. Um, and as I mentioned, we hope to see you in the future. Uh, so do you have anything uh, you want to say before we wrap up this episode? Well, thank you very much for having me, and I, I've enjoyed talking to you about uh, many different issues, including politics and sports. Uh, very passionate about both of those things, so hope to be on in the future. All right. We'll definitely have you on for some uh, MLB talk once that gets going, as well as uh, more politics, as well as some uh, philosophy, um, especially economic philosophy, because uh, you know, you're into that that field of study. Uh, so thank you again, Ben Rustano. Um Benjamin Rustano, I should say, full name, uh, for being our guest today. Um, And uh, just as a note for our listeners, we do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, as well as Benjamin Rustano again, uh, hopefully in the future. Um, So thank you guys for listening. My name is Paul Capuano, and this has been the Road Not Taken podcast.